Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shael ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. In the first episode of our Egyptian Exodus trilogy, we examined the historical facts behind the story. This time, we will do something a bit different and discuss how it shaped Israelite and Jewish identity over time. Meanwhile, in the episode after this one, we'll see how Egyptian and Hellenistic cultures saw the story. Episode 24, Who Wrote the Exodus Story and Why? According to Jewish tradition, the author of the book of Exodus was Moses himself. However, it will not surprise you to hear that historians and biblical scholars disagree. Indeed, nowhere in the book does it say otherwise. References to the story as one written by Moses come later. And if you read them, these stories always show Moses as a character rather than the author. When the Jerusalem Talmud was written in 350 CE, Jewish sages had by then agreed unanimously that Moses was the author. But the Tanakh itself does not say so. Arguing that Moses did not write the book is not particularly revolutionary. For example, 12th century sage Abraham Ibn Ezra noted that it's hard to believe sentences like Moses died were written by the man himself. Other interpreters have pointed out that it seems unlikely Moses would write, quote, Moses was a very humble man. Most more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. End quote. There have been countless books on who wrote the Torah, and we will get into that thorny question when we arrive at the relevant periods. But the current academic consensus is that the four authors have distinct styles and agendas. They're known as the following Source 1 is the priestly source, Source 2 is the Yahwist source. Source 3 is the Elohist source. Source 3 is the Deuteronomist source. And they're often referred to as the P, J, E, and D sources. There are other theories saying that there may have been fewer authors or more authors, but those are the four on which there's the most consensus. All these authors agree in very broad terms on the order of the critical events. However, they differ significantly and sometimes contradict each other on the details. Understanding what motivates these authors and what each brings to the table is actually the key to comprehending the Tanakh's historical evolution, context, and significance. And it really doesn't take too much digging into the Exodus story to start finding some contradictions. For example, in Exodus, we're told that Moses' father-in-law is Jethro. Chapter 3, though, tells us that it's Roel. In chapter 14, God says that Pharaoh will only chase the Israelites after hardening his heart. But he decides to do so before that happened. In the Revelation part, the Israelites are both reluctant to go to the mountain and also must be restrained from running towards it. And I could go on all day. People have been analyzing these contradictions for centuries because they're quite bothersome. In one chapter, the tent of the meeting is in the center of the Israelite camp, and no one can enter it. But in another chapter, it's outside the base, and people are entering it all the time. And there's really 
no satisfactory solution to these until you start looking at who wrote which part and when. The analysis of the contradictions and the different versions suggests that there are three Exodus stories that are combined in the Tanakh. We should note that the D source is not believed to have written any part of the Exodus story. So let's look at the three authors that did. First, the P version. The P or priestly author focuses on, well, priestly matters, ritual law, the origins of shrines, genealogies, that kind of thing. And because of the focus on priestly concerns, the hero of P's story is Aaron. And he makes it very clear, and it's believed to have been a he, that only the descendants of Aaron can officiate in the inner sanctuary. Therefore, they are the elite. And this version is more skeptical of Moses than the others, possibly because of the genuine interest P has in Aaron and making their legacy as impressive as possible. So this is how the P version goes. It retells the story of Jacob, which had already appeared in Genesis. First, the Israelites go to Egypt, where they are enslaved due to their excellent productivity. Then the Israelites cry out for assistance, reminding God of his pact with them from the days of Abraham. Then Moses shows up without any fanfare. God reveals his actual name to the guy, but Moses couldn't speak very well, so he appointed Aaron as the prophet. They go to the Pharaoh and perform a series of miracles. Notice I didn't say plagues. That's because in this version, it's more of a series of wonders to impress the Pharaoh and have him perceive the power of God. Most famously, the miracle involving turning Aaron's staff into a crocodile. The goal is that, quote, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Indeed, God has no interest in convincing Pharaoh here, just showing off. And that's why in this version, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Egyptian king has no free will at all in this telling of the affairs. After the Egyptian firstborns are slain, the Israelites leave with, quote, a high hand, end quote. In other words, they go triumphantly and with no rush because the enemy has been put in their place. This is the version where the parting of the Red Sea is performed in the way that we all know and love. Moses lifts his staff and the people of Israel are on their way. But when the Egyptians try to cross, the waters rejoin and the Pharaoh and his men drown to death. Note that the P version has no real suspense because God is in complete control and has already decided the outcome. The revelation of the word of God in this version is very short and matter of fact. The Lord appears in the cloud on the mountaintop. Moses ascends into the cloud. When he receives is a blueprint of the temple. God orders, quote, let them make me a sanctuary and I may dwell among them, end quote. Then the text provides seven chapters of detail on the tabernacle. It concludes with the following statement, quote, When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, end quote. So what we have here is a direct link between Aaron and the creation of the temple. Exactly the kind of thing that you might expect a priestly author to write in their version of the Exodus. Now let's move on to the J narrative. 
Harold Bloom notes that this author is typified by, quote, an affectionate irony, end quote. To this author, Moses is not the central figure in Judaism, but rather King David. The agenda of this writer is very, shall we say, pro-Judah, and at times quite denigrating of Israel, and while certainly respectful towards Moses, sees him as a puzzling prefiguration of King David, who was the real deal. Now, the J story starts with the death of Joseph and his brothers and the rise to power of a pharaoh who did not remember their contributions to the kingdom. He resented the Israelites and tried to stop them from expanding by enslaving them. But that backfires as, quote, the more they were oppressed, the more they increased, end quote. Moses grows up in this time and slays an Egyptian he sees beating an enslaved Israelite. And he has to flee to the wilderness. There he meets and marries Zipporah. When the Pharaoh dies, God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush and tells him to free the Israelites. He tries to avoid this heavy responsibility, but relents when God threatens to anoint Aaron. But when Moses asks for relief, the Pharaoh oppresses the Israelites further. So here the Egyptian monarch has free will. To punish the Egyptians, God casts six plagues on them. In this case, the plagues genuinely attempt to convince the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, because Moses announces each one before it comes, to give the Pharaoh a chance to change his mind. In this story, Moses does not ask for freedom for the Israelites. Instead, he requests three days to make a sacrifice. So when he finally agrees to let them go, it's a trick. That's why they pack in haste and bolt towards Canaan. In this version, the parting of the sea is different. The Israelites walk along the coast, and God creates a false coastline and fools the Egyptians into thinking they are following the Israelites. Then he made their chariots stick to the ground and sank them with a tidal wave. Less cinematic, but clever. Now, in this version, the wilderness the Israelites wander through proves very difficult. And here, they never stop complaining, which makes this a very convincing version to me. The Lord feeds them with manna. They also develop a lack of faith, which is why God triggers the revelation. And he does not provide Moses with anything. Instead, he tells him it's time to leave Sinai and that he will not guide them to Canaan because the people are stiff-necked. Theologians refer to this version as the theophany, meaning of there is a visible manifestation of God rather than a full-on revelation because God really reveals nothing on the philosophical level. That narrative ends here. And the reason that God doesn't give a full revelation to Moses, as you can probably guess, is because in Jay's version, God gives the full revelation of his covenant with the Jews to King David rather than to Moses. So Jay, who Harold Bloom, by the way, believes is a female author, doesn't want to give Moses too much credit here for the covenant. The E narrative is believed to have been written by a priest from Shiloh, which was in the Israel kingdom, who thought of Moses as an ancestor.
Richard Elliot Friedman, author of Who Wrote the Bible, notes that the writing of this source is particularly sympathetic to Moses as a person and develops his character in depth in a way the others do not. To this author, the Abrahamic covenant is irrelevant, and everything necessary comes from the covenant of Moses. The story starts when the Israelites are already in slavery. So the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh in question, who's never named, doesn't enslave the Israelites at all here. But he does escalate things by trying to commit genocide, beginning with the elimination of every Israelite firstborn. So this is the version where Moses' mother tries to save him by placing our mini-prophet in a basket and sailing him down the Nile. The daughter of Moses then raises him in the palace after finding him. When grown, God summons Moses to Mount Horeb. He tells him to free the Israelites and reveals the actual godly name. This version skips to the Israelites leaving Egypt. So there's no plagues here. As far as we know, E doesn't understand the plagues or mention the parting of the Red Sea. When they leave Egypt, the Israelites fight Amalek and defeat them. Then Moses' father-in-law appears. And unlike most in-laws, he has a helpful suggestion. He notices how difficult it is for Moses to deal with the quarrelsome Israelites. So he suggests appointing a council of judges. And here we have a full-scale revelation. The people appoint Moses as their intermediary because they're scared of God. And when the disclosure occurs, they're terrified and hesitant to approach the mountain. They witness God giving the Ten Commandments to their prophet, but clearly do not enjoy the experience, for they say, quote, You speak to us, and we will obey. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. End quote. Moses then returns to the heavenly cloud and receives a detailed corpus of law known as the Covenant Code. Then he comes down and tells the regular folks all about it, and they accept. He then ascends again and receives the tablets of the law, which are the physical manifestation of the covenant. That takes 40 days for some reason. In the interim, the Israelites are bored and build a golden calf. God is outraged. And Moses destroys the tablet. But after much groveling, the people are forgiven. And the Lord leads them to Canaan anyway. Moses receives a replacement set of tablets because apparently he got the extended warranty. Anyway, the way E sees it, there was no peoplehood before Egypt and Moses. And the entry of Moses into the story is the most crucial moment in history. And really, this is the narrative that puts Moses at the absolute center of everything. And as we'll see, in many ways, this is the narrative that won out of the three, because the other two try to marginalize Moses to some extent. One prominent feature in two out of the three versions is the revelation of God. Now, we have some clues that this is a separate story. For example, we identify the story with Mount Sinai, a spot in the peninsula. But that was only identified in the 4th century by the mother of Constantine the Great. Not exactly a biblical scholar. Instead, the text points to a spot in Edom, located in modern Jordan. Indeed, Deuteronomy finds this place in Seir, another name for Edom. And you might ask yourself, if they were coming from Egypt, what they were doing in Jordan. 
And there are a lot of other elements some scholars have noticed that make it seem like this part doesn't fit particularly well into the wider narrative. For example, in his excellent monograph, The Book of Exodus, A Biography, Joel Badden writes, quote, The seams between the Exodus and wilderness tradition still show. In the narrative of Israel's rescue from Egypt, there is little hint that they will be brought anywhere other than Canaan. Yet they find themselves heading first, unexpectedly, and in no obvious geographical order, to an obscure mountain, end quote. And that mountain is, for some reason, in Jordan. And later corpuses from the Hittites and the Akkadians heavily influence the law codes given to the Israelites, and those are more in the direction from which they were coming. And sometimes these texts from Iraq, from Syria, are being quoted verbatim. So this is one of those cases where the combination of different texts and traditions within the Tanakh is blindingly apparent. For example, the Code of Eshnunah says, quote, If an ox gores another ox and thus causes its death, the two owners shall divide the value of the living ox and the carcass of the dead ox, end quote. Now compare that to Exodus 21.35, quote, If one man's bull injures another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live bull and divide its price, and they shall also divide the dead animal. And remember, the Code of Eshnunah predates Moses, assuming he was a historical figure, by about 600 years. And it is an Egyptian. It was found in Tel Harmal, which is in Iraq. So it seems likely that this story and these laws are coming from a different time and place than the Exodus story. It's a combination of a story that people probably told about Iraq and Jordan and that area with a story that other people were telling about Egypt, something that we discussed a little bit in the previous episode. If so, we consider the classic Exodus story a combination of parts of these three stories. We're talking here about strands of oral history compiled and interpreted by three different writers, and apparently putting together oral histories that come from completely different parts of the world. Confirming our suspicion that the Israelites are really a combination of a large tribe that came from Mesopotamia and a large tribe that came from Egypt together. The stories were not put together fully until the 5th century BCE. However, it is clear that one version or another had been around for at least 400 years before they were compiled definitively in the Tanakh, mostly in the book of Exodus. By the time these stories had been compiled, the Exodus from Egypt had been linked to several holidays. Today, of course, we think primarily of Passover, where Jews read the Haggadah, and tell that story. But Shavuot and Sukkot are also celebrations of different aspects of the Exodus. The roots of these holidays are to be found in, not surprisingly, the book of Exodus. Here is the quote. Three times a year you shall hold a festival for me. You shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, eating unleavened bread for seven days as I have commanded you, at the set time in the month of Abib. For in it, you went forth from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And the feasts of the harvest, the fruits of your work, what you sow in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, 
when you gather in the results of your work from the field. All your males shall appear three times a year before the sovereign, the Lord. End quote. These festivals were, of course, agricultural. The vast majority of the Israelite people and everywhere else were farmers. In the early stages of religion, the people would go to their places of worship to give thanks for the fruit of their land. And these ceremonies centered invariably on the Egyptian exodus, long before the Tanakh was written. What we call today Passover is two different holidays joined together. One is Pesach, the day we nowadays mark with a Seder meal. Initially, it was the day when a considerable sacrifice was made for the harvest feast. The festival of unleavened bread followed this. If you read chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, you can see they're described in different verses, without a clear connection. Indeed, calendars from biblical times mark them separately. You can see that in Leviticus, Numbers, and elsewhere. But since they were closely linked in time and concept, they eventually came to be viewed as one. The Pesach sacrifice was clearly the more important ritual. How do we know? The Tanakh keeps mentioning it as a crucial point. First, after crossing the Jordan River, Joshua commits the sacrifice in the promised land for the first time. Second, King Josiah proves he's a great king by performing the sacrifice for the first time since the days of King David. Then, upon the return of the Israelites from Babylon, the sacrifice is performed to sanctify that momentous occasion. The subtext here is that this sacrifice is at the heart of the Israelite religion. Baden writes, quote, Each of these moments is not just of transition, but of communal and national renewal. The biblical authors are picking up on the idea that the exodus from Egypt was itself a new beginning, an important new stage in the history of the Israelite people. Indeed, the very moment at which the Israelite people truly came into being, end quote. The people's birth at that moment is a concept that appears in many places in the Tanakh, perhaps none as clear as the book of Hosea, which mentioned this several times. For example, quote, I, the Lord, have been your God since the land of Egypt, end quote. Or even more poetic, quote, I fell in love with Israel when he was still a child, and I have called him my son ever since Egypt, end quote. Indeed, throughout the Tanakh, the connection between God and the Israelites is forever embedded in the Egyptian exodus. Every momentous occasion exists in its shadow. For example, when King Solomon opened the temple, he asked for forgiveness for any sins the people shall commit henceforth. Quote, they are your very own people that you freed from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace. End quote. Therefore, they should be forgiven. The meaning of the repeated use of this phraseology is clear. The Israelites owe their loyalty to God to this event. The book of Leviticus says, quote, It is to me the Israelites are servants, whom I freed from the land of Israel. End quote. And the word for servants here is avadim, the same word we use in Hebrew for slaves. This presents the conceptually chilling prospect that the Israelites did not escape the bonds of Egypt as much as they switched to a heavenly master willingly.
And when the people are punished, it is because they have not repaid this debt to the Lord. For example, when the kingdom of Israel was destroyed, the book of Kings explains, quote, This happened because the Israelites sinned against the Lord their God, who had freed them from the land of Egypt, from the hands of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, even after the Tanakh had been more or less codified, the story continues to develop. We see the reference and use of it in the construction of narratives continuing throughout the Second Era Temple. However, the dilemmas that the Israelites faced during the Second Temple Era radically differed from those of the Bible's authors. Many writers of the time dwelled in Alexandria, which had become a center of Jewish scholarship. They were quite aware that they were living in a land that, to the biblical authors, was synonymous with everything foreign and alien. Meanwhile, others were in Jerusalem and other parts of the land of Israel. But at this time, they were feeling severely threatened by the predominant Hellenic culture around them. Now, the Alexandria authors suffered persecution most notably during the anti-Roman riots of 38 CE. And the tension they felt is evident in their work. One of the most famous creations from that time and place was the Wisdom of Solomon book. The anonymous author of that work went to great lengths to show how well the Israelites and Egyptians were differentiated. His theory was that for every one of the ten plagues, the Lord heaped a blessing on the children of Israel. Quote, The bites of locusts and flies killed them, but your children were not conquered even by the fangs of venomous serpents, end quote. Why this dramatic difference between Egyptians and Israelites? Because the Lord, quote, delivers the righteous and brings about the destruction of their enemies, as expected by your people, end quote. The bitterness the author feels at being repressed by the Egyptians is evident and immediate. Indeed, The wisdom of Solomon assures its readers that the oppressors of the Jewish people will get their comeuppance, even if you have to wait for a long time. Now, at this time in Egypt, a new counter-literature emerged. It focused on the story of the Egyptian exodus from the other side, showing Moses and the Israelites as the bad guys. And we're going to focus on that stream of literature in the next episode. But I do mention it here to illustrate how deep the hatred towards the Jews was in Egypt at this time. And the story of the Exodus became a political tool in the hands of both sides. One side used it to demonize the people of Israel, and the other to find comfort in dark times. And looking into that literature, a little bit of a spoiler alert, has really changed my perspective on anti-Semitism. I used to think that anti-Semitism was a product of Christianity in the modern sense. But I'm starting to realize from this literature that it predates it in a real sense to the uh, Hellenic era. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Now, it was this atmosphere in which some of the most famous Jewish thinkers of the time wrote. For example, Philo of Alexandria lived in the early 1st century BCE. He made it his life's mission to harmonize the Torah and Jewish lore with Greek philosophy, and the Exodus story was part of this attempt. To him, Moses was the ideal of the philosopher king. He described Moses as a man who applied himself 
to, quote, contemplation and the practice of virtue and the continual study of the doctrines of philosophy, end quote. Not really anything that you would recognize from the Tanakh, but something that would be in harmony with Hellenic values. A century, century later, famed historian Flavius Josephus wrote his work, Antiquities of the Jews. He tried to frame Moses as a Hellenic ideal there too, to push back against the anti-Jewish literature that he faced. So he described Moses as, quote, an excellent general, an extremely prudent advisor, and most reliable guardian of every person, end quote. That makes him sound like Alexander the Great, doesn't it? And he does make direct comparisons with Alexander in another part of the text. Louis Feldman sums up how Moses is portrayed in Josephus' work. He says, quote, Josephus' modifications of the biblical narrative are occasioned by the apologetic concern to defend the Jews against the charges of their critics, particularly cowardice, provincialism, and intolerance, as well as by a positive drive to portray a leader fully comparable to such great leaders, whether historical or legendary, as Hercules, Alexander the Great, and Pericles, end quote. Writers like Philo and Josephus sought to place the Jews squarely in a place of Hellenistic and later Roman virtue to fight back against the increasingly negative view of Jews in Egypt and elsewhere. This may sound assimilationist, and in a way it is, but as Baden points out, quote, rather than exhorting the Jews to become more Hellenistic, Philo and Josephus attempt to convince their pagan audience to recognize the inherently Hellenistic values already present in Judaism, embodied by the founding figure of Moses, end quote. Indeed, these authors take great pride in Moses and his laws, which are not assimilationist. On the contrary, both regard him as a greater lawgiver than any of his Greek or Roman equivalents, because after all, as they point out, his laws are eternal and immutable. In contrast, those of the Gentiles change with circumstances. You can see this patriotism in a line that Josephus wrote. Quote, I would boldly maintain that we have introduced to the rest of the world a vast number of beautiful ideas. What higher justice than obedience to the laws? End quote. Now, they both ignore elements in the story that make the Jews stand out as unique. For example, the covenant between the Israelites and God, which was the center of the story in the biblical era. And it's nowhere to be found in the writings of Philo and in the writings of Josephus. I do not doubt that both of them believed in and understood the covenant, but they were uncomfortable explaining it to non-Jews. And understandably so. It was these elements that set Jews apart and spurred Hellenistic animosity towards them the most. Practices like circumcision, kashrut, and cleanliness laws were viewed with great suspicion by Hellenistic society. And we'll discuss that in the next episode. So in conclusion, when the Israelite people first came together, they brought several narratives of peoplehood together, some emanating from Mesopotamia, others emanating from Egypt, and different interpretations of both. Over time, 
they combined these into one meta-narrative, the Egyptian Exodus. It served as the main story of how the people came into being and what it meant to be a Jew. However, as the community's needs changed, so did the story. At first, it served the interests of the northern kingdom of Israel, then the priests of the temple. In those periods, the stories stressed how the Israelites stood apart. But after the exile, the story became central to an effort to harmonize Judaism with other cultures while maintaining pride. The facts of the story did not change, at least not after they were compiled in the Tanakh. But they became so central to Jewish identity that every community reinterpreted it to suit their needs, something that we continue to see today. Anyway, that concludes our episode. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email or a loving email at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and you can also ask any questions that you want answered during the podcast. See you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.